Amen. Let's uh, let's read the word of the Lord, shall we? Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay Repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. And may we be transformed by the power of your spirit through it. God, conform us to your will this morning and help us to know how to rightly discern what you are saying to us through this passage, what you said to the lawyer. Amen. So I want to start out this morning with a confession. You know, I I have cultivated this habit in my life that my wife does not understand in the slightest. I would say it's an addiction, but that may be too extreme or too soft. I'll let you decide. At the end of the day, I love watching Fail Army on YouTube. Now, for those of you who don't know YouTube or use it, God bless you. You're better for it. But for those of you who don't know Fail Army, it's pretty much YouTube's version of America's Funniest Home Videos except not really that cute, okay? However, it does provide countless hours of wonderful entertainment and laughter. So, for example, last night, this kid lines up on his mom who's on a stepladder painting their wall. Kid has a Nerf gun, pop! Hits her right in the back, scares her. The paint goes up falls on her as she falls down the kid runs off and there i am laughing hysterically looking at my future in a couple years so yes it's it's you know a nice way to unwind at the end of the day unfortunately in the first century there wasn't fail army but luke actually writes for us a literary fail listen again to verse 25 for me 
And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, as if that was ever a good idea. Then he doubles down. It goes from bad to worse. He desires to justify himself in verse 29. Now, I'd love to keep poking fun at this lawyer, but isn't he speaking for us all? At the end of the day, aren't these our questions and our dilemmas? What do we do for eternal life? How can I attain it? And then how can I prove my merit, my worth, and justify my own standing before God? And if there isn't hope for that, what hope is there? Well, let's dive into our passage this morning and find out. Before verse 25 begins, in my Bible, and I assume in yours, There is a nice little heading provided to us that reads the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the heading's fine enough, but I agree with Sproul that I think a better heading might be a lawyer challenges Jesus. And here's why. It's important because sometimes we can read these passages in the Gospels and we actually believe the parable to be the point instead of the parable helping to prove the point. And here is one such place that we need to keep that in mind. Because that is exactly what we read in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. That's what's going on here. This encounter and the contents of the test questions are the context for the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, before we get to what he asked, let's first think about who this lawyer is. Who is this man? When we hear the word lawyer, I think any number of things could come to our minds. You know, uh, the butt of a good joke or two, memories of Matlock or Perry Mason, or even, you know, family members, in which, in my case, I have four. So... Any number of things could come to mind. But in our culture, we typically associate lawyers and delegate them to the realm of the civil and criminal world, right? That's where we find our lawyers. But in the first century, as the New Testament gospel writers describe them, the realm they interacted most was religion. Hence why this lawyer is bothering with Jesus. That is because... It was the Mosaic law they were interpreting and seeking to understand. Here stood before Jesus to test his wit and interpretive skill, a man who went to the best seminary, had top rabbinical scholars as professors, and was himself a successful graduate and had become an expert in the law. This was not a loving inquiry. It was a challenge of credentials, of worthiness to be trusted. So the lawyer's test question is rather simple enough, isn't it? 
What do I got to do, boss? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in one sense, service lawyer. He starts the match. Jesus returns the serve with a beautiful volley. And he asks him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer seizes the opportunity to flex his intellect. And he responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Your neighbor is yourself. At this point, we can presume the lawyer thought he won the match. Or what Jesus might counter that would contradict it so as to give the, the lawyer more ability to flex more of his muscles and call him out. See, you're twisting the law. You're not a good teacher. You contradict Moses. You're a fraud. But Jesus returns with a drop shot that took the lawyer completely off guard. You're right. Do this and you will live. Now, before we examine this and and make a few comments to that, I want us to think about the structure here for a second, right? Verse 25 tells us a motivation and intent followed with a question. We have the lawyer's first question. Next, Jesus's response is a question. Then the lawyer interacts with Jesus's question, and then Jesus finally gives instruction. Well, that is exactly what happens in the next paragraph, the next round, so to speak. Verse 29, we're given motivation or intent accompanied with the lawyer's first question. Next, and what sets the second dialogue apart, is we have the long discourse of the parable of the Good Samaritan, followed by Jesus' question in response. And then that is followed up with the lawyer's response to which Jesus gives instruction. Now, isn't that kind of nice? Just a very nice, simple layout that kind of helps us to see the point. Now, look back at verse 25. Luke thought it was important to mention the motivation of the lawyer because we are supposed to understand this was not a true inquiry of righteousness and truth. It was only to test and challenge, to shame and undo Jesus' authority and message. This is important for us because when it comes to reconciling Jesus' answer to the lawyer's question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Are we really supposed to understand Jesus suggesting to him a works-based righteousness according to the law? Was Jesus advocating that this is how you get in? Well, the answer is no, but it's actually complicated. Jesus is not suggesting a works-based righteousness from law-keeping because of a very important implication that is acted on by the lawyer in verse 29. The implication is this, that Jesus and Luke leaves out here. 
if you can. If you are able to do this, you will live. The problem is he can't, and he knows it, or, or doesn't want to be honest with himself. That is why verse 29 tells us he desired to justify himself. He knows exactly what Jesus left hanging there for him. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Try. Moses couldn't even get into the promised land. Good luck. Go for it. Well, 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 well. Yeah, that Luke tells us what motivates his next question. The classification of neighbor is exactly what he goes after. And why? Because he believes if I can just get the right set here, the right parameters, maybe I'll actually get in. Maybe I've done it right. He might gain his inheritance, which is actually quite a wonderful oxymoron. But the lawyer is suggesting that if neighbor was classified correctly, he might be perfect and worthy of eternal life. That is what he answered in verse 27, which was a combination of Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. It was nothing less and nothing more than a summary of the entire law. We see this presented to us in another condensed form of the Ten Commandments. The first four have nothing more than to do with God and his holiness. The next following six are love for neighbor. And this reverberates and is echoed throughout the rest of the entire law. But why did the lawyer seek to justify his love for neighbor? Why was it that thing he wanted to sit on? I think it was because it was the only thing he was hoping to set the parameters. It was the only thing he could potentially control out of all of God's word and all of God's law. Here was the one hopeful loophole. Hey, if I set the parameters here, maybe, just maybe, I've done it right. Because it it would have been foolish for him to say, which God? Well, he knows better. Or how to love neighbor or Yahweh. That, That would be wrong. It's prescribed in the law. The only elements that were ambiguous about the law were the matters of the heart. And here is the only matter he could potentially control. Let me control who, who these people are. Now, just a side note. Doesn't this sound like somebody we've already heard? Did God really say? There's another great scripture, word of God manipulator in the Bible. Well, in the first century, they tried to redefine neighbor. Remember Matthew 5, 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They heard that taught because it was the tradition of the day. Your neighbor was a very small group of people. 
Think about every time Jesus was with tax collectors and sinners. They despised Jesus for doing this because even those Jews were no longer neighbors. They're out. They've sided with Rome. They're too dirty. They're not our neighbor. And so Jesus, like a crotchety old man, smacks the lawyer over the head and says, you're a fool. It's plain. No, he doesn't. He proceeds in wisdom to tell a story. And this is where we find the parable of the Good Samaritan. To reply to his question with a better question. It's a it's meant to refocus him and actually get at the heart of the law. Watch this. The story is profound and simple enough for everyone to understand it. Probably why it's one of the most common parables. Jesus begins in verse 30. A man intentionally left unidentified here was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now notice, it further makes this man indistinguishable. We don't know who he is. There's no identifiable markers to this man. It's just a nebulous person. Because remember, the question is, who is my neighbor? Verse 31 continues. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now let's pause for a second. Remember the context. The question was, who is my neighbor? And their tradition implied it was limited. There's a limited scope on the neighbor. Now, we think, from our cultural vantage point, we think when we hear priest and Levite walking by and doing what they did, we think shame on them. They should know better. I'm not convinced that's what this lawyer was thinking. I actually think, up until this point, he's thinking, Jesus, you know what? I, I should have known better. We, we do see this the same. I know who's coming next. It's a relative. It's a friend. It's maybe somebody from the same village. You know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I judged you too harshly. Where, where are those hats that say Jesus is my homeboy? Hey, you know, can I buy one? I'll, I'll start wearing it. I'll start wearing it. But a Samaritan, Jesus continues, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, as opposed to crossing on the other side of the road, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. 
a Samaritan. So not even in the same geographical area, not of the same ethnicity, took care of this nebulous, unidentifiable man. But notice, the Samaritan took care of the immediate needs and his future. The full meal deal of the problem the Samaritan took care of. Now, the whole story leads Jesus to ask and get to his response question, which is this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Do you see what just happened? The lawyer is focused on narrowly defining neighbor to intentionally exclude people out. Jesus, on the other hand, focuses in on love and challenges the lawyer to see that his interest on exclusion causes him to miss the point of the command and actually break the law. The lawyer shocked once again answers jesus's question without even being able to say samaritan out of his own mouth the one who showed him mercy and jesus with the authority to instruct and have the final word says yeah go and do likewise and that brings us to the first part of the point teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life. Yes, perfectly. Obey all the commands. Go for it. But you are unable. Man is utterly unable and in, incapable to achieve or gain or work for admission into God's kingdom of eternal life. And part of why Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan is to intensify and clearly articulate the law's demand which no one born of Adam can fulfill. So that then raises for us a very serious and concerning question, doesn't it? If we all find ourselves, as Paul later describes, having sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we find ourselves in company of this lawyer. What is our fate? Are we doomed? Does death have the last word? Is there any hope for the children of Adam? I believe there is, but not in ourselves. Shortly before our passage this morning, there was a distinct change in Jesus' mission for how Luke is writing his narrative. In chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then again in verse 53, just in case it wasn't clear, Samaritan village rejects Jesus because it says, His face was set toward Jerusalem. Well, from that point on in the narrative, until... The end of chapter 18, the middle of chapter 19, depending on who you read, is Luke's travel narrative in the discourse. It's when Jesus goes from his early ministry and he's going towards Jerusalem and it's setting up 
the stage for what will happen there. And Daniel Bach, a leading conservative scholar in Luke, said all the tension of Luke 9 to 19 is resolved in the reality of the cross. Everything is bringing us to the climax. It's all the point. Some people say that the Gospels are like long introductions to the point. I believe one of the things Luke intentionally builds up with tension is this lawyer's question of obtaining eternal life and our subsequent question of hope because there's another person who asks the lawyer's exact same question right at the end of the travel narrative. Skip over a few chapters with me to chapter 18, verse 18. There we read, a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the ears of Luke's readers should perk up at this point, hearing this question again, and wonder, oh, how will he answer this guy? What's he going to say now? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Notice how he calls attention to himself and then proceeds with the law of God in verse 20. Okay, again. Yeah, try. Abide by God's law. To which, a little more bold than our lawyer back in chapter 10, this young fellow says, Yeah, I've done it. I'm your guy. So Jesus says, see you in paradise. Going to the cross, I'll be back, but see you there. No, this guy doesn't get it either. So Jesus actually has to tell him his lack. Listen to Jesus in verse 22. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor. Why? Why? This is very important. Why? You will have treasure in heaven. Jesus is essentially saying, change the kingdom you have your investments in. Your stock portfolio sucks on earth. You think it's here. It's not about here. And come follow me. Me, the person whom we identified as God. That's it. There's our ticket. All we have to do is follow Jesus if we want eternal life. He is saying, you want it? Just follow me. In a second, we're going to see where he's asking us to follow him. But first, let me make this case a little further about following Jesus. Skip a paragraph. Verse 35, chapter 18. Jesus draws near to Jericho in verse 35 to 43. Tell us an interesting story of a blind man. He hears commotion and ruckus going on. And he's told Jesus is passing by. Starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, 
he's being a little bit of a nuisance. And the people in front of him are saying, hey, would you please be quiet? Knock it off. We're trying to enjoy this wonderful moment here. It's like fueled to his fire and desperately cries out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops, brings the man to him and heals him. In verse 43, he says this. He recovered his sight and he followed Jesus, glorifying God, the man who couldn't see, saw better than most in that day. He got it. He followed Jesus. Everything he had was put on the son of David. Jesus was his only hope, and he is our only hope. The son of David, the Messiah, was going to save him, or nothing or no one could. And he has indeed. But let's revisit this question. To where are we following him? He's saying, come follow. There's a logical question. Where are you going? Well, back up a paragraph. Jesus actually plainly tells us where he is going that we are to follow. Listen to the paragraph starting at verse 31 in chapter 18. Jesus gathers his disciples and said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. We follow Jesus to Calvary, where he takes upon himself our disobedience to his Father's law. As we cry, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then the greatest exchange happens. He takes our guilt and our lawlessness and receives its proper punishment and the righteous wrath of God for it. And then something else happens. He gives us the perfect, obedient, complete, full, righteous merit of the law. Did you hear that? He earned perfection. What the lawyer was seeking, what the ruler was seeking, he earned it. When he sat before God, there was no sin. There was no law-breaking in of himself. It was our sin that Jesus condemned in the flesh. And he gave to you full righteousness. 100%. There is no more law keeping for us to possibly do. It has been done to perfection. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 
for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if you sit here this morning and never tasted the sweet gift of God, I genuinely feel sorry for you. There is no greater treasure than Christ. I urge you to wait no longer and repent. And let me let you in on a little secret. You would be saved into the Lawyers Anonymous Club. We too thought we could earn our own righteousness as well. And we often have to remind ourselves there is nothing, nor ever will be anything, we earned for eternal life. It was a gift from start to finish. And this is another part of why Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan is to rely upon him as our inheritance of eternal life. He is our only hope. Now, I want to draw this sermon to a close this morning with the last reason I believe Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it was to teach his followers the boundless nature of Christian love. And notice, Christ never condemned the law or said it was flawed or even no longer needed after his sacrifice. Both to the lawyer in chapter 10 and the ruler in chapter 18, Jesus commanded the law. He commended it. And so now as followers of Christ, the ministry of the Spirit, foretold by the prophets, prayed for by Jesus, sent by the Father and the Son, enables us to go and do likewise to love our neighbor as ourself. But because we are the lawyers anonymous, allow me to say this. Christian neighborly love is not done out of compulsion. Burden, earning, achieving, guilt, obligation, even supplementing. Sometimes I think the lawyer in us believes Christ made us 99.9% righteous. No. The complete 100% fulfillment, perfect requirement of the law has been credited to you. In fact, this is the great doctrine of justification. You sat in God's courtroom and he declared you righteous. God's word has come down on you. Do not profane his word. Because his son died for you. Christian charity, Christian ethics, Christian love for our neighbor come out of a heart that has no burden to fulfill the law because it has already been fulfilled. We love because Christ has made us new. We have a new heart, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, a new nature, the Spirit of God producing in us Christ-like character because that is who we are now. 
anyone is in Christ, there is the new creation. Andrew told me a great quote this week that sums up this perfectly. Christians do not obey for their righteousness. They obey from their righteousness. As a way of illustrating this, do you remember that feeling you had when you first believed and Christ pardoned your sins? Like many other new converts, what happens? You start telling everybody about it. Your love and countenance towards people changes. I mean, you want to bring out water and wash your dirty, mean uncle's feet. You could even be burned at the stake. You're like, nothing matters. Because I once was dead. And now I'm alive. Christ is all satisfying. That is how we want to love our neighbor. Not out of obligation, compulsion, burden, but because God's loving grace has made us alive and righteous in Christ his Son. Let's pray this morning.